The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association takes this time to thank our 2023 corporate sponsors. Bristol Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, BioMarin, Tanaya Therapeutics, Edgewise Therapeutics, and Embrya. And thank you to our 2023 annual patient meeting sponsors. Bristol Myers Squibb, BioMarin, Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya Therapeutics, Edgewise Therapeutics, Rocket Pharmaceuticals, and Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, with additional funding provided by the J.T. Babbitt Foundation. Welcome to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. We've been on a little travel hiatus the past few weeks, and we're back now with Dr. Martin Marin from Leahy in Massachusetts. We are going to be talking today about sudden cardiac arrest. It is October, so it is Sudden Cardiac Arrest Awareness Month. And we're going to talk about risk stratification and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and our upcoming meeting in one week and one day's time. So good morning, Dr. Marin. Good morning, Lisa. Always great to be with you. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in this morning. We have a month dedicated to the problem of sudden cardiac arrest. And it is October, and it is also Breast Cancer Awareness Month. But as I once famously said in a live broadcast on Dr. Radio, it's October and we need you to think beneath the boobs. We need you to think about your heart. (laughs) So I can get away with that one. So I want you all to think about when you should be doing risk assessment, either in your patient or if you're a patient with HCM, when should you be revisiting risk assessment for sudden cardiac arrest? Marty, what is sudden cardiac arrest? Yeah, so great way to start just to make sure we define these terms. They often get, it's all get, can be very confusing sometimes when we use different terms interchangeably for different things. So cardiac arrest refers to a situation where the heart goes into an abnormal electrical rhythm, usually very fast. And that very fast abnormal rhythm causes a problem with decrease in blood supply to different parts of the body, including the brain. And that quickly can result in a patient losing consciousness. And if that abnormal rhythm continues like that, then it becomes life-threatening because oxygenated blood does not get to the appropriate organs. And at a certain period of time, several minutes, that starts to have devastating consequences that can become irreversible, including death. So that's what's called cardiac arrest. The rhythm that's usually responsible for that, the abnormal rhythm is called, those are called ventricular. Ventricular means bottom chamber. Tachycardia just means fast, called ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. Those are the two types of bottom chamber rhythms that can cause a cardiac arrest. And just lastly, Cardiac arrest is a general term. It's not for HCM. You can have other heart diseases that can cause cardiac arrest, but the process that I just said and the consequences 
are the same regardless of the disease, cardiac disease a patient may have like ATM or others that cause that to happen. So cardiac arrest general term. And, and maybe also just to make one other point about that, about terminology too, before we move on, that's different than a heart attack, which usually refers to a blockage of the artery that is supplying blood to the heart muscle. That's called coronary artery disease. When that blockage becomes acute, essentially decreases blood supply to the heart, that is what's called a heart attack or myocardial infarction. Now, that heart attack or myocardial infarction can then cause the patient to have a cardiac arrest, okay? But cardiac arrest, different than heart attack. I think that's a really important piece to bring up is a lot of people who are just diagnosed with HCM come into the fold and they're wondering if, quote, they're at risk of a heart attack. I oftentimes have to sit back and explain, typically in HCM, the plumbing of the heart, the coronaries that actually provide the blood to the myocardium, to the heart muscle itself, are normal. It's the muscle itself that's abnormal and thereby leading us to a higher risk of arrhythmias. Right. So it's it's a complicated path. It takes a lot of understanding of the anatomy in the beginning when you're diagnosed, but we're here and we know a lot more about these diseases and what the starting point is for evaluating risk factors. It has evolved over time. So if you were evaluated 15, 20 years ago, the factors that we look at to evaluate high risk of sudden cardiac arrest have changed. So you want to talk about things that we've known the longest? Let me just make one other point that kind of connects what we just said to that next part of the conversation. And that's that patients may be listening and saying, okay, I heard you about cardiac arrest, irregular rhythm that can start out of the blue, that compromises blood flow and can become life-threatening. But then the question may be, well, why does that happen first in, in, in HCM? Let's just maybe address that for one second. In, in a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the heart muscle is thicker than it should be. I think all, all the, everybody listening in appreciates that issue. But the muscle being thick, if you look at it also at the, at the sort of microscopic or tissue level, it's also very abnormal, meaning the cells, the heart cells themselves are abnormal. They're thicker, they're bigger than they should be, and they're arranged in a very kind of chaotic pattern compared to normal. And then there's also other abnormalities in an HCM heart that include the blood vessels that supply blood to the heart muscle are not normal in HCM. And that can sometimes create a mismatch between the blood supply and demand. That's called ischemia. So that that's also another important component. And then also there's scarring. And I think people are familiar with the idea that HCM heart has scar tissue in them that results from a number of different reasons. So what? So then just to kind of summarize that, you've got all kinds of different abnormalities of the heart structure that we believe can provide the nidus or does provide the nidus, the trigger, for the abnormal rhythm to occur that then causes the cardiac arrest. That obviously doesn't happen in all patients with HCM. In fact, it's only a very small number that an abnormal rhythm can cause a cardiac arrest. But before we determine how you how we can identify who those patients may be, 
I wanted to make the point that the reason it happens is that abnormal anatomy of the heart. So we have stiff, thick walls. Right. There's kind of a reason why I get into the brick background in my podcast. That's normal cell structure, people. The cells are equal. There's these nice little spaces between the cells. We're kind of like a jumbled up brick wall in our cell structure in some areas. And that leads to the potential for the rhythm to not be as completely normal because the heart walls aren't normal and the electrical system can be a little wonky running through those abnormal walls. And that leads us to a higher risk. So we know the basis of the disease leads us to be at a slightly higher risk than the average person with a normal heart. But we know within HCM, there were higher risk phenotypes and presentations. Maybe it would be helpful if we kind of went through the, what do we need to do to assess those risks? So let's start with family history. What do we need to know about family history? Yeah. So I think, well, so, right. So I think, so the introduction here is that it's only a very small number very small number of patients with HCM that ever experience a cardiac arrest situation. But obviously, given how important that kind of event is, we try to identify which HCM patients are at the higher risk of a cardiac arrest happening because we have a treatment for those patients. We have a way to protect patients that are at high risk so that if they did suffer a cardiac arrest, that could be treated immediately and a life saved. That that treatment I'm referring to, of course, is the implantable defibrillator. The question really is, the question really is, <laughs> you can hear that? Okay, so the question really is, how do we approach identifying which HCM patients are at high risk for a uh, cardiac arrest and that would be the most deserving or appropriate to have an implantable defibrillator to protect them going forward for the rest of their life? And the way that that has played out over the last several decades, is that through lots of different studies done by different investigators in HCM, both in the U.S. and and globally, have identified what we call risk factors, markers, in a profile, in a patient's clinical profile. These are results of different tests. We'll talk about a little bit more about what these are in a minute, but these are what called risk factors. In these studies, been shown, if you have that risk factor, to be associated with an increased risk of a cardiac arrest in HCM. So they've become sudden death or cardiac arrest risk factors. And there's about seven of those now. And so what the current recommendation is, or the current strategy is sort of focused on for certainly all patients initially, and then as we'll talk about how to do it in follow-up, but certainly all patients with ATM should be assessed for the presence of one or more of those risk markers. If you have one or more of those risk markers, you may be somebody whose risk is increased enough in the future of a cardiac arrest that it would be appropriate to, to, to potentially talk about a recommendation about ICD. So that's going to stop there. That's the principle of risk stratification. Not everybody who gets diagnosed with HCM needs an ICD and needs that kind of intervention to prevent cardiac arrest, correct? Yeah, sorry, I, I missed the first part of the question. You were asking whether you have to have an ICD, you have, that an ICD is necessary to prevent the cardiac arrest? No, that if you're diagnosed with HCM, yeah, is the first stop getting an ICD? Or risk assessment? No, risk assessment. Yeah. Yeah. So risk assessment, right. Okay. So we do have a number of people who have kind of gotten diagnosed and somebody kind of panics and says, device up. 
And then when we speak to them three, four weeks later, they say, well, I don't know what my risk factors are. So we want patients to be engaged and know what risk factors are and when they should be offered a device and, and how to do that. So again, let's start with, okay, family history risk factors. If somebody in your family has died at 90 from a heart attack, is that different than somebody having a sudden onset cardiac event that arrives at death right. at 40? They're different. That's right. That's right. So, so starting with the risk factors, then you chose to start with family history. That's one of the seven risk markers. And generally the way we've kind of described that risk factor is that if a patient with HCM has a family member, usually a first or close relative with HCM who died suddenly at a younger age, from HCM, that then kind of constitutes a positive risk marker for family history. Generally, what we mean by young is generally around 50 years or younger had died from HCM suddenly. That's a sudden death due to the disease. And that made, and the reason that that's a risk marker is that we know that there can be families with HCM where there can be multiple sudden deaths throughout different generations related to the disease. And so we have recommended that if, a, if, if there's one sudden death due to HCM, that's enough for us to say, we're not gonna wait around for another one in that family. We're gonna recommend that patient be protected with the ICD. That's the family history. Okay, so that's one. What's two? Number two would be, uh, not in any specific order, but number two would be a term called syncope. That's the medical term. The, the, you know, what that means is simply passing out, blacking out abruptly or acutely from what appears to be an abnormal rhythm that sort of led to that loss of consciousness. And then fortunately, of course, that rhythm stopped and the patient still was, is, is alive and being evaluated. And so that's called syncope, loss of consciousness, indicative of the possibility that patient had a life-threatening rhythm that stopped. And so again, that's a situation where we don't wait for the second time for that to happen because it may not end up to be as fortunate the second time. And so that risk marker, syncope, can also justify that the patient be protected with an ICD going forward. One other point about loss of consciousness, sometimes um, we see patients that had a, a loss of consciousness episode that occurred many, many, many years ago, 10, 15, 20 years ago. That's not as relevant as if somebody comes to us that had a loss of consciousness episode recently. That's more concerning. Evaluating the reason for syncope is critical. So right. if the syncope is due in the belief of an HCM expert to obstruction, the blockage of blood, blood flow out of the left ventricle, outflow tract obstruction. Right. Is that as dangerous as without obstruction and just somebody passes out out of the blue? Yeah. So you're raising what is a really important, you know, issue with this risk marker, syncope, is that there can be other reasons an HCM patient can pass out besides an abnormal rhythm, right? There are actually many different kinds of causes. Most of them are benign. And so part of the challenge is from the history of that episode, trying to determine the best we can, was it from a potential rhythm 
or was it from one of these other benign causes? And sometimes that can be very hard to do. And other times it's more, it's easier. By the way, there's another, you know, example of why, you know, it really is helpful to be seen by an HCM expert center of excellence, because I think the centers of excellence is really are in particular attuned to this issue of maybe more placing greater expertise on trying to determine whether it was a benign or malignant cause of the syncope. But the bottom line is we try to do the best we can to determine the cause of the passing out. And if we're left with it, what could possibly be from any rhythm that can lead to an ICD. Family history, history of syncope, not related to obstruction. Right. Necessarily. Right. What would be a third risk factor? Third would be the th the wall thickness that a patient has. That's why wall thickness is so important. That's why you know you have, you know, you and 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 the HMA have really done an incredible job of trying to educate patients about important numbers from their visits mm -hmm. to focus on. Of course, wall thickness is one of those because the wall thickness is related to risk of life threatening rhythms, where extreme thickness, which we define as at or close to 30 millimeters or more, that's the, the, the trans-dimensional wall thickness measurement of the left ventricle, where it's the thickest, is associated with an increased risk of sudden death. And so that also may be enough alone, meaning a wall thickness of close to or greater than 30 millimeters to recommend an ICD. So we have family history, syncope, wall thickness, right. then what? Then we have results of the monitor. Patients are you know, very used to probably putting these monitors, what we call ambulatory monitors on. For a long time, those were what we call Holter monitors that were connected to wires, to leads, to the chest. They were worn usually for a day or two. Fortunately, we're in a different era with that technology. And generally, most of the time, patients are wearing patches that can document the rhythms that the patient is having over days to up to two weeks or more. And so evidence on the monitor of abnormal, what we usually call shorter, what we call bursts of ventricular arrhythmias. If a patient has a lot of those on the monitor or there are other you know, characteristics that we put on the, on the ventricular arrhythmias that we see on the monitor, like if they're particularly fast or long, that also can be a risk factor as well. So what we call non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, NSVT, that's what we're looking for with the monitor. And depending on what that shows, that can be a risk marker. Again, the devil's in the details. Number of events, rate of the events, frequency right. of the events all matter. And one pop of one number one time doesn't have the same value as recurrence. Is that correct? That's right. So there's an example. Yeah, let's make an example of that because I think that'll help kind of, you know, have people wrap their arms around it. So like if, you, if you're an ATM patient and you put a monitor on for two weeks and over that two weeks, what we find is one four beats of an, of an irregular rhythm from the bottom chamber called non-CVT that is kind of slow. Let's say 100 and what would be slow would be like 140 beats per minute. Okay. That is looked at differently than if a patient wears a two-week monitor and has 10 different bursts of non-sustained VT over the monitoring period, of which several 
were long, more than eight beats together, or were really fast, like 200 beats per minute more. We would put much more weight on that result as, as, as evidence of increased risk of a life-threatening rhythm in the future than the one short burst of four uh, NSVT. And it's important that those tests get repeated over time because things can change, right? That's right. And so, right. So we generally repeat the assessment of the risk factors, usually yearly, particularly young middle-aged HCM patients, and maybe a little bit less frequently, less frequent in older HCM patients, just because risk of sudden death there becomes very low once a patient has achieved more advanced ages with HCM. The risk for sudden death, cardiac arrest, we should have probably said this in the beginning, is, is much higher when HCM patients are younger or middle-aged compared to older. It's a little bit paradoxical to what you would think, but there's something about younger age that increases the risk of life-threatening rhythms in this disease compared to other heart diseases. So now we have round five. We've talked about family. We've talked about syncope. We've talked right. about mass hypertrophy. We've talked about rhythm. What information do we get from imaging that helps us determine risk? Yeah, one of the most important things we get from imaging, wall thickness, of course, we get from imaging, but what else is what we call sort of unique, unique changes to the, the anatomy that increase risk. And one of those is if an ATM patient develops what's called an apical aneurysm, particularly if that aneurysm is a little bit bigger than, than, than small, uh, it's a moderate to large apical aneurysm, can itself, which an aneur apical aneurysm is just so everybody knows, it means that the bottom of the heart, the apex, becomes thin over time in some ATM patients, thin and scarred. And that provides another when that happens, another focus in the heart for abnormal rhythms. So the presence of an aneurysm itself, because of the structural changes that happen there, can increase risk of a cardiac arrest, and that's also a risk factor. And that can be seen with either echo or most reliably with the MRI. The second imaging risk factor, and so we're on, I think, number six here, would be the, yep, the assessment with MRI, not echo, because this is special or unique to MRI, is the ability to see and quantify the amount of scarring in the heart muscle. That's called, that's usually determined with an intravenous injection during the MRI of contrast called gadolinium. That's why the injection, if you've ever had an MRI, you've probably had the injection. That's why we're doing it, because that contrast is what shows up the heart as scar tissue. And if you've got a lot of scar tissue on the MRI, that increases the risk of cardiac arrest. And that is therefore another risk marker. And that leaves us with one more. The final one is the small number of patients that develop over time, a decrease in the heart pump function, which we, you know, the term for that is called ejection fraction. That's the term of that we use to describe the, the 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 contractility, the performance of the heart pumping. Usually, as as patients may be aware, the vast majority of patients with ACM have supernormal pump function. So ejection fractions that are even higher than than the normal population. But there's a small number of patients that over time develop a decrease in the pump function. So their ejection fraction drops. And when that happens, that process increases risk of rhythms, abnormal rhythms, and therefore is a risk factor. 
for that reason. Can anybody ever assume zero risk? No, it's a great question. In fact, we always say to patients, particularly the ones that have none of those seven. So if you have none of those seven risk factors, you would be called a low risk patient, low risk for a cardiac arrest, not no risk, low risk without any of those risk markers that we generally would consider that kind of patient to be one that wouldn't benefit from the ICD. But we don't say that their risk of course is zero. We can never say that with with this disease, but we would say that it's low enough that it probably wouldn't make sense to have the implantable defibrillator put in in that situation in most cases. We're really good at kind of saying low risk, but not no risk. And we're really good at saying high risk. We've seen a lot of stuff. Shared decision-making, that conversation with one's healthcare provider with special knowledge of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it's really important in that middle area. How somebody is going to make that decision to device up or to not device up. And I think it's really, really important to kind of talk about some of the things that people might need to be aware of if they're in that middle zone, especially some of our European followers. You know, the risk factors are a little different wherever you live in the world and what your access to care is. But that middle gray zone is really confusing for some people. So can you talk a little bit about how to how to yeah. think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're, you know, what you're talking about is is that, you know, it is is what we call the gray a gray area, gray area, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, no matter what kind of strategy we were ever going to develop here to to identify patients that could they're always, because of the nature of the disease, the complexity and the heterogeneity of it, you know, we're always going to be faced with the issue of some patients who kind of fall into not low, but not high, and they're kind of in the middle a little bit of risk. Okay? I think most patients appreciate that kind of principle. We've called it the gray zone, intermediate call it exactly. That's what you're talking about, I think, here. And there really often isn't any kind of magic way of resolving that other than to tell the patients that this is where they are. They're in not a low, not a high, in the middle. That risk is probably somewhere about X percent per year risk, maybe, of a life-threatening rhythm as a, as a in the intermediate area. And to discuss with them whether they whether they think that that risk for them is is high enough or not to pursue the ICD that that conversation, particularly in the gray zone, has been called shared decision making in a lot of ways. That's that's what we talk about with shared decision making. Patients understand fully the the situation and also fully understand the pros and cons of the treatment, and have a discussion with them to decide once they become fully empowered with understanding the situation, what they feel they're willing to take on for risk and also take on in terms of treatment so that resolve that gray area so that everybody is comfortable with whatever decision a patient ultimately makes. That, that's how we do it. Once somebody is determined to be at a higher risk of sudden yeah. cardiac arrest and they determine that they wanna think about a device, in today's world, there's some options. 
there's transvenous implantable defibrillators, which are implanted up in the chest and the wires go into the heart. And then yep. there's the SICD, yep. which is a little bit larger of a can. It sits on the side of the chest on the rib cage and the lead is tunneled under the skin and up the sternum. They don't operate exactly the same way. Some The implantable device in the chest has more features than the SICD on the side of the chest. So it's really important you have a deep conversation with your HCM specialist as to which device would be right for you. That's right. The subcutaneous ICD, the one where the the generator is usually below the, the pec or breast and the, the lead goes under the skin, usually kind of parallel to the sternum. So it's not in the vein or the heart as opposed to the transvenous, which is the device which we've had the most experience with over time where the generator is generally put in below the collarbone, lead is in the vein, and then into the heart. The sub-Q, obviously, in some ways, is able to, just to make a couple points about that, is kind of gets over the, the, the long-term complications of, of the transvenous, which happen to be that leads that stay in the vein and the heart over long periods of time can sometimes fail or cause complications to the vasculature or can be a source of infection that that makes it challenging to remove those leads if they get infected. And so the sub-Q, because the, the, the lead is not in the vein or the heart, it, it, it doesn't have those kinds of long-term complications to it. And also, if it needs to come out for whatever reason, it's it's very low risk to get out. The downside of the, the sub-Q, the downside, but the, the, the flip side of the sub-Q is that where one, it doesn't provide the ability to ace the heart. So if it's a situation where an ACM patient may be acing because the heart's going too low, the sub-Q is not there. And two, not all patients qualify for the sub-Q. The vast majority do, but about 5 to 10% of ACM patients can't get the sub-Q because the risk of inappropriate shocks, inappropriate shocks, would be too high with the sub-Q to put in safely. That said, the efficacy, the ability of the device to sense a life-threatening rhythm and to deliver a shock appears to be the same right now between the sub-Q and the transvenous. You have choices. You have choices. And we hope that you consider those choices with a an expert, not only in electrophysiology, but one who has experience in evaluating high-risk phenotypes and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, because it's not all the same. And I have had countless people over the years have a community cardiologist immediately default to device right. without doing by a true risk assessment. And I feel really bad for these individuals when they call the office and they're like, and I got my ICD a week after my diagnosis. And I'm like, what's your risk factor? And we go through everything and there's no findable risk factor. Right. And now they've got a device for life. Right. And that's, you know, it's a little, you know, reassuring. You got your 24-7 emergency room in your chest. However, you don't necessarily have the high-risk phenotypes. And we, we want you to be emotionally well with your device as well. And we want you to trust it and believe in it. But uh, we want you to make sure that you're getting it put in by somebody who really understands the, the risk stratification process. And we have somebody watching today and they're coming from the private group, so we don't see their name. This person is making these decisions for themselves right now. So we did the podcast on the right day for them. 
So Facebook user, we're hoping that you gain something out of this. And uh, that's why we do these things. We, we talk about it publicly to help people find education at the time that they need it. And yours just well-timed. Big decision. I mean, it's a big decision. I mean, it's a huge decision. There are a number of big decisions that patients with ATM may be making in their course of their life disease, but the ICD is certainly one of them, given, of course, that it's generally considered a permanent decision in terms of the, the device going in. Obviously, the flip side of that is that that there are obviously a number of important things to consider in terms of, of not having it and the risk that that obviously holds too. So in other words, the decision is a big one, as you just said. So obviously not that anybody would take that lightly, but the expertise around that conversation is really important for patients to have. Can't be brief. Yeah, we have another Facebook user that we were confirming that they made the right decision for themselves this past March, and they're just getting used to life with an ICD. So I hope they're doing well with theirs. You know, I come from a family with cardiac arrest. I lost my grandfather, I lost my uncle, and I lost my sister to cardiac arrest. And knowing that we have therapies today that save families, it's mind-boggling what we can do today. I mean, I'm talking to you with somebody else's heart in my chest. That's pretty amazing too. But that ICD gave me a lot of protection and comfort over, you know, I had one for over 25 years and it, it did, it did its job to provide surveillance, but mine never actually went off until those who are on my Facebook group know what happened the day after I came home from my transplant and my device shocked me in my hand. It's the only time it ever shocked me in my hand. So may you all only get shocked in your hand. And the other point is just to just you you know the other point to sort of maybe you know bring up is that that and, and this has kind of come out of a lot of experience with a lot of these conversations of course and dealing with families and patients that have decided to have the device is that you know I do think and, and I'd like to hear your you know obviously your your thoughts obviously on this as well but I think that for the vast majority of patients not all but for the vast majority of patients who get the ICD even if it doesn't ever end up shocking them or delivering therapy for a life-threatening rhythm. The fact that they have the device and it's there in the background, able to provide them protection from a life-threatening event from their ATM, a cardiac arrest, is a psychological benefit, not only to the patients, but to their loved ones around them who then don't have to have the weight of wondering whether or not without the ICD, there may be a problem. And so the psychological benefit of just of that power of having the device placed, even if it doesn't go in, I think has really served a lot of patients and their family members very well over now many, many years that this has been going on. And so that's another important, I think, point or view of this issue. I think the emotional well-being of patients who have any risk of cardiac arrest once they have come to terms with the device in their body and they've quote made friends with it as i like to say it is a partner and i will share a unique perspective that when my device was taken out after my first device went in when i was 23 my first icd at 27 and i had multiple devices until my transplant they sent me home from the hospital without a defibrillator and a new heart And I was nervous. It took me a couple of weeks to really be comfortable not having the device in my body, providing that additional protection, even though my new heart does not need that protection. 
psychologically, I felt like it was something that I should just kind of offer it. And it, it took a little bit of time to adjust to not having an ICD after so many years of having an ICD. And I noticed somebody who's never had one that must sound bizarre, but when you have a 24 hour emergency room in your chest, when your heart goes and you don't know what it was and you're like, Oh, my ICD will do the job. And it wasn't there anymore. It was a little unnerving. So I loved my device and we got along really well, even though I had one failure and I had to have a you know, pretty quick re, you know, re-implantation of a device. It only lasted two years. They are man-made devices. They are subject to recalls. They are subject to failures. So it's really important that if you have an ICD, you go for your checks, you use your surveillance devices that are offered, and you make sure that you're doing your part to maintain the piece of equipment that is in your body. Somebody's posting here that they've had multiple lead extractions and problems. I don't have a name, but I suspect I might know who this is, but the device has also gone off multiple times and saved their lives. I guess this is a, a, there's no free lunch kind of a comment, like there's prices to things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of them. (laughs) There's no question. Right. That's right. And some people say they feel safer having yeah. it no matter what. And others are wondering the long-term effects of being shocked multiple times. Are there long-term effects of multiple discharges from an ICD that we know of? Well, I think, you know, what we generally say is that getting a shock, whether it's appropriate or inappropriate, doesn't do any direct damage to the heart muscle. It may provide a psychological weight having a shock and a, completely would understand that. And that's very challenging sometimes for patients, particularly in the short term after that episode of of a shock. But in terms of actual structural changes or damage in HCM, the answer is no, it doesn't. I think this Facebook user put a really important comment in here. As I listened to this, I'm made aware that I'm uneducated on my heart condition. I guess I don't know the right questions to ask. I've had an MRI. I'm told that there's scar tissue, but don't know how much. I've never had risk factor tested. I'm going to give I'm going to give some airtime to our process. Please call the HCMA. Do an intake, get a navigation call. Let us help you organize your thoughts. Let us help you find an expert. If there's not one in your local area, we now have thanks to gracious donors, the Lori Fund, which can provide up to $600 in travel expenses for those in financial need to get to a center of excellence to get an evaluation. We also have some programs that can offer telemedicine services if you're within state. Some can cross state lines. So we can look at options that are available for you to understand your own anatomy better, your risks better, and to find care in in a very expedited manner. So please call the office, set up an intake. We're a little bit behind right now. I've been doing a lot of traveling and we have our annual meeting coming up next week. So it may be a couple weeks before we get to talk. But start the process. Please start the process. Yeah, I thought it was a good discussion today. I hope it sounds like, you know, Hopefully those listening or who will listen will get a lot out of that. I thought that was a good discussion. So thank you. Okay. So Marty, you and I need to catch up in a few like this afternoon because yep. we got over some stuff for next week. So when you're done with this meeting, give me a call and I'll jump on with you. Okay. Sounds um, good. Thank you again. You are very welcome. Appreciate I'm going to with everybody for another minute here and talk a little bit about what's coming up next week. Saturday, October 21st in Morristown, New Jersey, we're having our annual meeting. If you live in the area and have not bought tickets yet, call the office and sign yourself up because um, you don't want to miss this. 
there have been um, talk call your center and ask them if the center may have any passes available for you because we've had some generous donors who have supported some extra tickets but they have to go through the center. So if you are at any of the New York metropolitan area, HCMA recognized centers of excellence, you can call them and ask if they have any tickets available. Um, so that would help us ensure everybody who wants to be there can be there. So please uh, call the office if you want to come on out. And then Saturday night is the gala and the gala will help support the Lori Fund and put money in the kitty so that we can provide more travel vouchers. We've already given out over $5,000 in travel vouchers just this year alone and people have gotten to care. We have also um, extended the Lori Fund to be able to fund if you have been moved to hospice care and treatment is no longer an option, there might be some available funds there. And there should also, in the event of final expenses, we can pay up to $600 for that as well. So somebody put a post in, you should consider streaming components of the meetings. It is really, really expensive to run a meeting in person and it's almost double the expense to stream. So we cannot do everything. And sometimes you got to get on uh, in the car and come on out and do an event in person because that's where you're going to not only get the most knowledge and, and experience, but support from your fellow patients. Online is great. You can learn through podcasts. You can learn through webinars. But having organic conversation in person really does add to the learning experience and the support supportive nature of the community. So uh, I encourage you to come on out. It's a lovely town. Morristown is beautiful. It's um, a safe, beautiful community, and it's a great uh, venue at the Hyatt. We've been there many times in the past, and we've got a beautiful night planned for you. So come on out. And I look forward to speaking to you all in person next week at the actual meeting. We have so many wonderful faculty coming to be able to hang out and talk during the break times with Marty and with Ethan and Matt Martinez and Anjali Owens and Charlene Day and Marcus Hasday and Alex DeFeria. I'm trying to think of all of our faculty and more and more. There's just some amazing, Beth McNally from Northwestern, geneticist, cardiac geneticist extraordinaire. Like it's gonna be amazing. You can talk about clinical trials. There'll be coordinators there to speak with to get more information to see if you may want to participate in an upcoming clinical trial. There's going to be a lot of content and a lot of opportunities to get engaged, to see what's coming up with new technology. There's just so much happening, people. It's crazy. It, it's good crazy. When I started this whole endeavor in 1996, 95, 96, there were a couple of researchers that were interested in HCM. I kind of felt like the island of misfit toys. You remember, you know, from Rudolph. Now I feel like the cruise ships are pulling up to our island of misfit toys and everybody's getting off and trying to understand who we are, what we are. There's no better way to explain to industry folks and pharma folks who we are as a community than talking to them. And you'll have the opportunity to do that next Saturday. So come on out to Morristown and join us. It's an amazing time when we can all get together and, and share and educate and support each other. That's why we do what we do. And that's how we do what we do. Lots more coming. Stay tuned for more information. And thank you to Roz for dropping all those links. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for joining us from Tales from the Heart. Have a great day, everybody.